Good morning and welcome to Sojourn. If you are a guest with us, we are glad to have you. It's a privilege to serve you. We are a church that prioritizes the Bible. So we go through verse by verse books of the Bible. So we'd encourage you to turn, if you have a Bible, to Genesis chapter 23. We took a brief break from Genesis and now we are back in Genesis 23. And because we care about and prioritize the Bible as our book, the one that is to inform and instruct all that we do as a church, we, we also see that we, we stick to and have to cling to the central message of the Bible, which is the Gospel. You might notice that when we do everything in our service, it all has hopefully a, a Gospel shape, and that that's even noticeable. We're not trying to hide that whatsoever. That even when we do announcements and stand up here, we, we start with the Word and prayer. We, we know that God has started with us and that we need to turn to Him and ask Him for help that we might honor His name. That the songs, they, they have an arc often of, of creation and fall and redemption and hope in Christ and glory and for Him. And, and then we go to His Word and we, we see that in His Word that, that every page whispers the name of Jesus. And so hopefully we'll be able to see that this morning in Genesis chapter 23. And as we turn to His Word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask Him that He would bless our time together. Father, we are gathered together as Your people, and we have Your Word before us. And that is an amazing reality that we get the pleasure and the joy of, by Your mercy, to do together. So God, I pray that this time would be honoring to Your name. That we would see the, the glory of the Gospel in Genesis chapter 23. And that You would change our hearts where they need to be changed. Let Your will be done. Uh, in this time and in this text. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Well, death can be the occasion for a lot of things. If you've lived long enough, you've lived through the death of a loved one or someone close to you. It can be the occasion for mourning. It probably should be the occasion for mourning as we're reminded of the realities of, of Genesis chapter 3 and how they've continued to carry on even to our own day. It might be the occasion for fighting. You hear that often when, when funerals happen and family members are divided over different things, the elements of the funeral or even possessions, all those kind of things. It can be the occasion for good things like gathering. I've heard that often from people. It's like the only time we get together now is when there's a wedding or a funeral. It might be a good occasion then that, that you, you at least you get to come together again and see people and be around them. It might be the, the occasion for planning what's, what's next, how do we need to think about our own lives. But a lot of times we wouldn't think of death as an occasion for assurance, for, for hope. But yet in the, in the hands of God, death is never a setback. But rather, in, in the hands of God, death is an occasion for moving His purposes Forward in ways that we don't even know. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we get to see this, the, the death of Sarah, kind of this uh, queen, in a sense, of, of Israel, the, the mother of all of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 23, what God does is He uses it as an occasion to bring assurance to His people as a tomb for burying Sarah is secured in this chapter. So assurance comes in the form of a tomb. Now it wasn't the tomb itself that brought much assurance, but what it meant for God's people, what it meant for the people of Israel. And so in Genesis chapter 3, if you look at verses 1 and 2, Abraham's wife, the, the mother of Israel by the birth of Isaac, dies at the age of 127. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
Now just quick thoughts about Sarah's life. Sarah's been through a lot. Her and Abraham were called when they were idol worshippers in another land. God called to Abraham and said, go to the place I'm going to show you. And so Abraham and Sarah went, took up all their, their, their possessions and things. They, they went to a place they didn't even know where they were going. They go in, in faith. They go following God and His Word. But there's all sorts of tension in the story. You might remember in Genesis chapter 12, uh, they, they go and they're following God and then they have a famine in the land. So they go to Egypt and they have that whole episode. All the while, we know that Sarah is barren. She can't have children. And in Genesis chapter 12, when God had called them, He said, you're going to have lots of offspring. And so we have this tension immediately that we have barren Sarah called and said over her, like, you're going to have lots of children, and yet she's still barren. And we go through many, many chapters in Genesis of Sarah being barren, and yet God reaffirming and recommitting Himself to this promise that through Sarah, you are going to have offspring. And so we've walked through that together. We saw that, that Sarah, even in, in maybe a moment of, of lack of faith, she, she gives Hagar to Abraham, and, and Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and they have Ishmael, and, and that, all, that whole episode. And we, we have this movement toward this climax in Genesis chapter 21, 20, 21, and 22, where we see finally, out of the midst of years and years of barrenness and brokenness and hardship and turmoil, we get to see Isaac be born, and then almost killed again in Genesis chapter 22, if you remember that. But here we have Sarah who's lived 127 years. And, and you need to know that that is now, with, with this is barren Sarah, barren for many, 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 many years, got to live and see 37 years of her son Isaac's life. How extraordinary is that? At this point, 127 years old, she dies after seeing 90 years of barrenness and then 37 years of her son Isaac's life. And we have to be reminded of the question that God asked at one time when He's speaking to Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? After all that though, Sarah gets two verses in her death. And then the rest of the chapter is going to have nothing to do, really, with her at all. But, so you might think, like, okay, Sarah is a pretty big figure in the Scripture, listed in Hebrews 11, kind of gets a raw deal here, two verses, her death, and it's just kind of like, we're moving on. Talking about something else. Let's talk about this land for a while. But Sarah is the only woman in the Scripture whose name, or whose lifespan is given. And so she's honored in that way by the author of Genesis chapter 23. But she was an important and prominent woman whose faithful life was, was a display of God's power, of God's glory in her birthing Isaac after 90 years of barrenness. But before uh, Sarah's death... Abraham was told about his brother back in Haran. Now, we skipped this when we went through Genesis chapter 22. We're going to back up. Genesis chapter 22, verses 20 through 24 say this. This is before Sarah's death. They say, now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. Great names here. Kimuel, the father of Aram. Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf and Bethuel. And these eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ramah, bore Teba and Gaham and Tehosh and Maka. Man, these are always very, very hard to go through, especially publicly. 
And this is a reminder, or would have been a reminder for Abraham of, of what's going on with his extended family. This is going to become more important as we move into Genesis chapter 24. As Isaac tries to find a wife, it's going to be a big factor there. But it would also have reminded, as he hears this news, Abraham of his roots and of his family and of where he came from. That he lived in this place with this brother before. That they worshipped idols and they had all of this stuff, former life. And so it would have reminded him of what he left. And what was behind? And why did he leave? Well, he left believing a promise. And I think it's worth rehearsing and thinking about that promise that he was given in Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3 said, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham left with his wife believing that promise from God. Having faith in that promise from God. That God was going to use him for something. He was going to do something in him. And so what seems like a a small detail should also be jogging Abraham's memory of this faith that he had at the beginning. Of of believing God's promise of what he was going to do. That God said, I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. And those who bless you will be blessed. And I'm going to give you land. And that one would have specifically stuck out as we go to Genesis chapter 23. Because these promises up to this point are partially fulfilled. He has one son uh, who's a child of the promise. That would be Isaac. He hasn't really been that much of a blessing to the nations. But you could maybe argue some of a blessing. But land. He's a sojourner and a foreigner in the land. So he has no land. This has not been fully fulfilled yet. And so when Sarah's death comes, we have tension in the story now because Sarah's death would have been a reminder that they have no legal claim to the land. So Abraham has has no right to even bury his wife in the land that God had promised him. And that's where the story picks up in Genesis 23. If you look in verses 3 and 4, Abraham rose up from his dead and he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. You remember, God promised the land that we know as Canaan. He promised that land to Abraham and his offspring after him. We see this in chapter 12. We see it repeated again by God when Lot separated from him. Lot picked a good portion and God said, don't worry, that's the portion that I want you to have anyway. We see this reaffirmed to him over and over to him. And though God had shown Abraham the land and reaffirmed his promise to him a few different times, Abraham at this point, long after Genesis chapter 12, still has no legal claim in the land whatsoever. He has no right to even bury his dead there unless someone should give it to him. He is described as a sojourner and a foreigner in the land. He has no rights and they're not even ordinarily entitled to even buy land where they're being sojourners and foreigners. And so 62 years he's been living in tents as an immigrant essentially in someone else's land. In the land that God had actually promised to him. And so at this point, late in his life, he doesn't even have a place to bury the The great Abraham, sojourner, immigrant in this land, doesn't even have a place to to bury his wife who had died. But Sarah's death could have been seen as another burden on Abraham. See, God hasn't fulfilled this promise. You don't even have a place to bury the dead. It could have been another reminder for him that he still hasn't received what he'd been looking for, what he wanted, that he's a a sojourner. It could have been a setback in his life. But it doesn't seem that Sarah's death works that way in Abraham's life. 
That it doesn't stunt his growth or make him question his faith. Instead, it gives him occasion, I think, to display his faith. Hebrews 11 says it this way, that by faith, he, being Abraham, went to live in the land of promise. And as in a foreign land, he was living in tents, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham is looking forward not to a city and a place in that promised land primarily, although I'm sure he would have loved that. He was looking primarily to a better city, a greater city, whose foundations and designer and builder are from God. And so Abraham makes his desire known, though, as a sojourner, foreigner, like he wants a piece of the land to bury his dead. He says, give me the land, which is another way of saying, sell me the land. He wasn't just trying to take from him. Give me the land. And he he wants, what does he say? Property that I may bury. Now, property has the, the sense that this is not just a tomb. A tomb would have been less permanent. He wants property. He wants legal claim, legal stake in the land. We think that what he is trying to do is establish a permanent place in the land that God had promised him. And so this seems to be, from Abraham, an act of faith. That he's not looking forward to the full fulfillment of the promise, but he wants a portion. Looking forward to something greater, he's trying to stake down some some stakes in the land that make a permanent claim for him and his family. And I like what one author has commented about. He says this, that establishing a place in the land of promise is an appropriate step of faith. That God's full gift of the land lies beyond the lifetime of Abraham and Sarah. And so what he's doing is he's trying to establish that. He's trying to start rooting down into that promise. That maybe Abraham at this time knows, like Sarah died, like I'm older than her. Things are getting bad. I'm going to die, so maybe I should prepare the way for where I can be buried. Maybe he's thinking that. Maybe he thinks like... I've got to take care of this now because this is going to be fulfilled later. I'm never going to see it in my lifetime. So now I've got to get at least a portion. But whatever it is, as a sojourner looking to another city, what he's doing is he's rooting and attaching his life and his family's life deep down into the promises of God. Who promised him that land specifically. That is that he is acting upon God's promises. He is rooting his family in God's promises. His faith is taking action and he's seeking to buy this land. That is, he has real faith. Only real faith, genuine faith, has actions. And so he doesn't hear God audibly speak to him and say, you need to buy this land. You need to make this this purchase of this property. Rather, he knows God's promises. That God said, this land is going to be for you and your offspring. And he starts acting upon them at this time. I recently heard this interview with Johnny Erickson Tata. You might have heard of her. She's uh, had a diving accident when she was uh, younger, and, and she was, was paralyzed. She's a quadriplegic. And yet she's launched out in this ministry now of, of how God sustained her to help suffering. Other, other people are suffering, so she has this ministry that she launched. And I heard an interview for her. If you hear her, her the way she speaks of, of God is infectious because of how much joy she has in the midst of all the suffering she's gone through. And as a quadriplegic, she not just doesn't have uh, operation of, of kind of her limbs, but she has great pain often where, where she relies on other people to, to turn her, to move her, to, to help her work through this pain. And, and in this interview, she said she was having a specifically uh, painful day. And she says, I decided I'm just going to start reciting every single one of God's promises that I could remember. And then I thought, like, how many promises of God can I remember? How long would that, that take? I'm guessing it took her quite a while. She knows several. But for believers, for those who who have pain, trial, and and even death, those things become occasions not to 
to go into despair. They become occasions to recite the promises of God, to be rooted in the promises of God, to act even upon the promises of God. And this is how the people of faith live. This is how they lived in Genesis. This is how we should live now. That they, we are to be people that are rooted in the promises of God. So much so that we're acting upon them. That we know them. We're reciting them. We're, we're going through them. And then we're living our lives accordingly. That is the, the people of faith know God's promises. They root their lives down deeply in those promises. They act upon them. Can this describe our lives? We're rooted in the promises of God. We're acting upon the promises of God. Now this is not the point of the passage here, but it seems like Abraham is is doing something for his family. That he's establishing something not just for himself, but for later generations. And it's it's a good example for for those who are leading families. Like start rooting. Do as much as you can to root your family down deep in the promises of God. Now for Abraham and for us, this would involve like knowing those promises. Reading them, rehearsing them, sharing them, passing them along, remembering them, believing them, acting upon them. This is what Abraham is doing here. But in order for Abraham to get this land, he's going to need these Hittites to make a deal with him. As a sojourner, as one who has no legal claim. And so we see the story pick up in verse 5 again. They say that the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God. Which is interesting, the only time that God is mentioned in this entire chapter. That God is, in a sense, absent from Genesis chapter 23, although He's still working. Prince of God among us, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you His tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, they seem to be willing to make a deal, which is good. They respect Him. They say He's a Prince of God. They they likely know that He's been blessed, that God is working in His life, even by the material and the way that God has blessed Abraham with financial means. But they, they say that they are willing, but it seems like what they are willing to give is unclear. They, they want to do him a favor, but they changed the word that Abraham had used from property to, to tomb, which is less permanent. It's not a, a permanent stake in the land. And so Abraham makes sure that they know exactly what he wants. Verse 7 and 9, 7 through 9, Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said, then, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field, and for the full price let him give it to me in your presence as what? Property for a burying place. So he knows the place, and he wants it to not just be a tomb. He wants it to be his own property. That means he's making clear what he wants. He wants legal ownership of this. He wants a claim to this now and for future generations. And so this is what's happening here is that there's this kind of this back and forth of tomb and property with Abraham. So Ephron, he steps up. He's been called out because Abraham knows his property, knows what he is. And he reveals, as we continue to go, we're seeing this is a very legal proceeding. That they're in the gates of this city. That there are people around. There are plenty of witnesses around to see this proceeding. And we continue, verse 10 and 11. Ephron has, was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city where the official business would have been done. Now, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. 
So we have this public and legal and appropriate witnesses for this entire proceedings. But does he actually mean what he says here? He's like, oh yeah, just take that. You can just have that land. Does he actually mean that? I would say that more likely he's picking up on a business opportunity. That he knows that Abraham's kind of in a crunch here. Like, the dead's here. He's, needs, he's got a timeline on getting that thing, getting Sarah buried. He's got to get that, that covered. That he has a lot of means. And that he doesn't really have a legal stake here, so we, we can kind of do whatever we want here. He's a sojourner and he's a foreigner. And so I, I think that it's likely that he's picking up on all these things and he's thinking in terms of money. He's thinking this is a business opportunity for me. And I think that's maybe even why he perhaps he, he adds and have that field too because he knows now all of a sudden the value is going up for what he can ask for. Now maybe he could be just really generous. That, that's possible too, but I don't think so. But Abraham presses into Ephron's offer to make sure that he gets the final sale of the property. It says in verse 12, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of all the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So Abraham's basically saying, I'll pay in cash. He has silver on hand. Pretty sweet, just busting out the dollar bills and saying, I'll just put this right down before you. But Ephron, he, what does he do? He masterfully replies, verse 15 again. He says, my Lord, listen to me. I have a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? You know, bury your day. And I think that's kind of how he's saying it. Because he, he's kind of, it, it's kind of a, a bait there, right? He's throwing it out there. Oh, 400, I don't know, 400 shekels or so. Give or take a couple hundred shekels. That'll probably do. And it seems like he is inflating the price. I say that because in 2 Samuel... 24, 24, David buys a piece of property that actually becomes a place that's really important. It's where they place the, the, the tabernacle, the temple. And David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So, like, give or take like, inflation rates or whatever's going on in the old, like, 400 seems to be an inflated price. Maybe it wasn't at the time, but it seems to be that way from other passages in Scripture that we get. And so Ephraim mentions this inflated price with, without really asking. Right? He's really sly. Oh, 400. He's not asking for it. He's just saying, oh, this may be worth, I don't know, 400 between the two. Yeah, what's that between us? And so he's kind of asking without asking. And he's got the upper hand, so he's in for a sweet deal. But Abraham is not all deterred by this. 400? Alright. He starts weighing it out and gives it to him. Verse 16, Abraham listens and he weighs it out for him the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So he just pulls out the cash and lays it before him. A done deal at this point. And it's worth remembering where Abraham got 400 shekels of silver that he could just throw on a piece of land at a moment's notice. You might remember that two times, two times Abraham had run-ins with foreign kings. Both times, Abraham cowardly gives up his wife. Right? We would say sinfully even, like, you need to protect your wife. And he says, oh, she's my sister. And they take her, both times. And yet both times, God intervenes on the situation. And He protects Sarah and Abraham and preserves their family, preserves even the offspring that He was going to give to them. And on top of that, both times, Abraham and his family leave the presence of those kings with more than they had come with. The first time they went to Egypt because of a famine. My guess is they didn't have much to live on at that point. They leave with all sorts of livestock. The second time, Abimelech is said to have even given him quite a bit of silver. 
And it says a thousand pieces of silver had been given to him by Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. And so without these, these two kind of crazy episodes in Abraham's life, Abraham doesn't have the money to buy this land. So he can't take credit for this and say, like, look at all that I've done. I've been a really good businessman. And I've made all these really sweet deals to get me up into this point. He doesn't even seem to try to have any sort of business savvy here. He's like, 400? Alright, let's do that. He just drops it down. So Abraham is what? Relying upon God. God had provided for this land. God had given him the means to drop 400 shekels of silver at the time that Ephron asked for it. And so Abraham, he can't take credit for this. God gets the credit for this. God gets the credit for giving the means to Abraham to make a purchase in the land. So God took some really bad choices that Abraham had made to flee the land at one point, to give up his wife multiple times, and he turns them into something good, something actually really, really big. The purchase of the promised land. And God does this all the time through the Scripture. Now we, we would exhaust ourselves if we looked at all this, but think about the ones we've seen just in Genesis. We remember Lot. Lot leaves Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife and his daughters. Wife doesn't go very far with him. His daughters do. They go to a cave. And, and his daughters get Lot drunk and sleep with him. Both of them. That's a bad episode with some bad choices. What does God do? Out of one of those daughters comes the tribe of Moab. Which is not a very good friendly people for the people of God often. But out of Moab, who comes? Ruth. And from Ruth, who comes from there? David. And from David... Who comes? Jesus. So God takes this horrible, bad situation, bad choices by His own people, and He uses them for good. You think about David and Bathsheba. Horrible sin. Maybe even worse than what most of us think. Like it, it could be that David raped her. It, it, either way, it's, it's sexual immorality. Then he kills her husband as, as she's pregnant with his own child. What does God do with David and Bathsheba? Solomon. Solomon comes out of there. Like, all of these things. We could go on and on and on. We're going to see a bunch more as we start study the story of Joseph in the end of Genesis. On and on and on we could go with how God works through the Scripture, taking really, really bad situations, messed up situations that His people get into, and turning them and using them and redeeming them for something good. And so have you made some really, really bad choices in your life? Amen. We've done it. We've been there. We've screwed up. We've messed it up. Even today, like our hearts are... We need the gospel. And yet God is using all things to work together for His people's good. That He's faithful to His promises. That He's faithful to, to say all that He promised He's going to fulfill. Even when we are faithless, it says He is faithful and He will remain that way because He never changes. So for believers, we can know that God is always working all things, even our own mistakes, even our own sin against God, for something that would be for His glory. Something would be for His glory and our good. Think about how awesome it is that God works this way. That all of a sudden Abraham could come and draw 400 shekels of silver that he got because God had provided the means in ways that Abraham, he, he no, had no idea likely that he was going to draw 400 shekels of silver at this point. God is doing a million things that we have no idea about all at the same time. Working in horrible situations to bring about the purchase of a piece of property that He could bury Sarah, but it would also be a piece of the promised land. And God surely uses this episode, this major event to shape Abraham. Because here's what He does. He does 400? Alright, here you go. 
In other words, Abraham's not so concerned about the money. He's rooted in something deeper. He's looking forward to a city. He's valuing something greater than even the land itself. He wants a city whose foundations have been built by God, whose city is designer is God. That's what he's looking forward to. He knows that he has something of better value than silver. And so giving 400 shekels for silver, like no big deal. He's looking for a better city. And so what he's doing again is that he's acting with faith. That he's committed to God's promises so much, that he trusts them so much that he's willing to go, like, alright, 400, that's fine. Let's do that. Do we trust the promises of God like that? That we'd stake everything on it. We'd give everything up because we know like we're counting on God to fulfill His promises. That's what Abraham is doing here. And that's what real faith is. Is staking everything on God. That if He doesn't come through, we are to be pitied. That He's our only hope. That we're only clinging to Him. And if He doesn't come through, then we're done. That's what faith is. You got a question though. Does does Abraham do the right thing by paying this inflated price? Should he have haggled? Couldn't couldn't a lot of that money have been used for the poor? Couldn't he couldn't he have done something different here? Did he use it for the right thing? Could he have used that money better? Well, Jeremiah has a similar episode. And Jeremiah, the, the prophet, he, he writes during an interesting time. When the Babylonians are are invading. The Israelites in Jerusalem, they're tearing out the city. They're getting ready to take them into captivity. And Jeremiah is speaking into this situation. And in the midst of the Babylonian onslaught, he buys a piece of land. And actually, once again, really, really cheaply. Maybe it's, it's way down because of how valueless the land is when the Babylonians own everything. But he buys this land. So Jeremiah 32.9 says, I bought the field. And uh, it was to him 17 shekels of silver. So really, really low price compared. And we go, we go on in verses 14 and 15. That thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now, Jeremiah was doing something specific. He was buying the land. Because God says, you're going to come back. Yeah, you're, you're being judged. You're going into captivity. But you're coming back here. I promise. So his buying of the land was a buying in faith. That God is going to fulfill His promise. That even though the Babylonians are taking them away, burning their city, tearing down their walls, that God says, you're coming back. Because I said so. So buy some land. However cheap or however expensive, buy the land. It seems like Abraham's purchase is indicating something like Jeremiah's purchase. That there's a future here. That there's something more going on here than just buying a tomb, a burying place for your family. I mean, think about it. Why give Sarah two verses in chapter 23 and then move on to the rest of the verses talking about buying this land? Why spend a whole chapter, if you're writing five books of the Bible, which I think Moses wrote these first five books, why spend a whole chapter on buying this land and all the the deal of buying this land? Why do that? Unless something more is going on here than what we would normally see. Why devote a whole chapter to this? Why speak of the land over and over and over again? Property over and over and over again. Why go through all the mechanics of this deal to make sure it's legal and right? Why do that? Well, there's something bigger going on than just purchase of property. That God is signifying something greater. That what He promised in chapter 12 is starting to be fulfilled right here at the occasion of Sarah's death. Think about the people. The original hearers of this word. We, we think that the, the people of Israel are hearing this as Moses is writing this as they're in the wilderness about to or approaching the promised land. The land that God is showing them was bought at least in part by Abraham here. Think about what they would have heard. This speaks volumes. What's God doing? 
Abraham's a sojourner. He's a foreigner. He has no right to the land. He has no way to kind of move up his status in the land. And yet God doesn't let those barriers hem him in. Doesn't let him hold it back. He still gets a piece of the land. Even for a great price. He has provided the means for that. But what does that speak to the people who are looking into the land of giants? That's occupied by nations that are greater than them. Says that God is faithful. He is powerful. That He can provide for His people all that He says He can provide for them. And so Abraham, a, a sojourner with no legal claim or light to the land, he obtains a permanent stake in the land, and God provided the means to do it. And so the people of Israel are hearing this: that we can have our stake in the land because God is going to provide the means to do it. He has promised us. He's faithful. He will do it. And as they sit on the promised land, on the edge of the promised land, they can be reminded and refreshed in this knowledge that God will do what He promises. That His arm is not too short. That there are no circumstances that hem Him in. That they can go into the promised land even with all its giants in there. And they can take it because God has said so. God has promised this. God is faithful to all of His promises. He's a God that over and over again we see can be trusted. That you can stake your entire life even on this God and His promises. And that He always comes through. That His people can have confidence in Him. Even with a burial site. That's why we spend a whole chapter on it. To solidify this idea, I think, in the people's minds, that the deed, in a sense, has been given. So we've kind of see the death of Sarah, two verses. The deal was the rest of the verses. And here we see the deed to the land. So the field of Ephron at Machpelah, which was east of Mamre, the field which the cave was in it, and the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. And so this is specifications for the land, but it's more than that. It's more than a burial site. It's more than just a cave to bury. This is a deposit. This is an assurance from God to His people that I'm going to be faithful to my promise. That the land I promise you, this is going to be your land. This is putting a stake down in the land and saying, this is God's. He has promised it to a certain people. He is going to be faithful to fulfill it. And so officially here, that the people have a piece of land. It is theirs. In the land that God had promised, it is theirs. Even though they had no right to it, God provided. But by faith in God's promises that His descendants will have this land, Abraham buys and buries Sarah in this land. We read in 19 and 20 that after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So as Abraham goes to lay Sarah in the cave, he's doing what? Moving in faith. Looking forward again to the hope that God has given him. That he's going to fulfill his promises in this land. That his descendants will actually get a bee in this land. And we get to see in Genesis that Abraham is buried here. And that Joseph requests to be buried here. There's all sorts of stuff that are going to come back to this cave. But a cave, a tomb, a burial site in this field turns out to be a place of hope. Not just a place of death. That assurance is found now in this tomb. Because what it signifies for the people of God as sojourners and foreigners in this land. And I think that this assurance is us is for us too. That is to say that as Abraham buried Sarah in hope, we too can bury in hope based upon some of the things we see about God right here. That through Jesus, sinners can be reconciled to God. And because we are reconciled to God, even though we are sojourners here, we look forward to something better, greater, who 
has prepared a place for us, Jesus said. That's foundation, designers, is God Himself. That we don't look for permanence in this world to, to set down a permanent claim to the land because we're looking to a greater century, city. That we're looking beyond this country to a greater country to come. A better city. And that Jesus says that even though you die, you will live. Even though you die, you will live. And so what we can do is that we can act in faith like Abraham here. We can bury the dead with hope that God is going to do something. With the hope of receiving something greater than just a dead, empty tomb. And we can bury them in the hope that they're going to receive their full inheritance. That all that God has promised is going to come true. That when He says that you too will be raised, because He was raised, we will be raised. That we can bury our deads with the same kind of hope and faith that Abraham buries his dead. Because God is faithful. And we have assurance of this because just like the Israelites, they could have assurance that their stake was in the land. We have assurance of this because we too look at a tomb. And this tomb, we know, is a tomb where Jesus was buried. He died. He was put in a tomb. And you can search that tomb now if you can find it. There's lots of theories about that. But no one's there. And so all of a sudden, a place of burial becomes a place of hope for the people of God. That they're going to have something more. That they're going to have an inheritance that's even beyond the land itself. That signifies something so much greater than they would have thought in the beginning. Because of a tomb. And for all those who have this kind of assurance, we get to remember it. And we remember it with a meal. So as the people of God, we, we gather together to remember all that God has done for us. To remember His faithfulness to us. And one of the ways that He has set before us to do this is through the Lord's Supper. Where the people of God gather around and they're reminded that Jesus, His body was broken for us, He says. That His his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And that each time we take this meal, we're being reminded that our inheritance lies beyond this country to a greater one. That Jesus says He's going to come back to us. And that He's going to take us to the place that He had prepared for us. That's what we're being reminded of in this meal. That's why we say this is a sacred family meal. That's why we say if you're not a believer, don't take this meal. This is not for you. This is for the family of God. This is for the people of God. If you're not part of that, if you haven't repented and believed the gospel, take Jesus instead. Believe upon Him. If you know what that looks like, you want to know, if you want to find out more, ask a believer. Ask one of us. We'd love to tell you the good news of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ's return. But if you're a believer, be reminded of these things. Have assurance and hope found. What? The table reminds us, not in ourselves, but in Christ Himself. Amen. And so if you're a believer, come and take care of a piece of the bread, dip in the juice, and be reminded of all that God has done for you. Be reminded that because you're united with Him, He's coming again, He's going to take you to a place that's far better than here. That you don't need a permanent claim here. That you have a permanent claim with Christ. In fact, even listen to the words of the song they're playing that, that remind us, that say over and over again, we have no abiding city here. We're not looking for that. That's not our hope. Our hope's in Christ. So take in that kind of hope as we take this meal together. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Genesis chapter 23. Thank You for the occasion of Sarah's death that reminds us of how faithful You are. Reminds us how good You are and powerful You are. And God, thank You for the reminder that we can have assurance in a tomb as well. That as the people of God look to that tomb as, hey, there's, a, there's something more going on here. That God is faithful to His promises. That we can look at the tomb of, of, of Jesus Christ and be reminded of the same thing. There's something more going on here. That we can be reminded again that You are faithful, that You are powerful. And that You've prepared something better for us than just that tomb. That even though we die, we can live. God, I pray for any of those who, who don't know You. Draw them to Yourself. May the, the glory of Christ who... 
died, was buried, and was raised. Draw them in. May they be transformed by your grace. And for those who know you, may we be reassured again in taking this meal that you are with us, that you really have done something for us, and that you're coming again. And God, may that bring assurance and hope, confidence as we go throughout our lives. God, be honored and glorified in this time. Amen.